Recorded live. Good evening. Welcome to Aldo's Targeted Individual Community Call. It's Thursday, January 7th, 2016. Another year and still targeted. As first show of the new year. Same old shit, just a different location and a different day. Doesn't stop. They've been doing a lot of neurological targeting. Um, it was really interesting. I, had, I was called into a meeting with the COO and uh, the warehouse manager for the company I work with, um, Cesar. He had a PIM that had a white light. And you know how they like to use lights for triggers. But that would be something that would be in the form of optogenetics and utilizing light and motion to trigger. But that would mean then that the phase of any subcutaneous goes into implanting of this uh, organic algae that's light sensitive going through the uh, visual cortex area. So that means my body is probably riddled with all kinds of shit that they can't get it out of me. All being used for experimental purposes. So um been working with my computer, and uh, there's some problems when I'm logging in. Uh, I had finally got through the Comcast security. Um, they um, had me change the IP from a static IP address to another one. They wanted me to utilize a 16 to 53 character password, caps, you know, uh, caps, um, cap locks, it, uh, what do you call it? You know, just all different characters, numbers, exclamations, etc. cetera, uh, within the, the 50, uh, 16 to 53 characters, the longer the better. Then they start talking about either a VPN or some, you know, like Tor. You know how Tor is a hidden browser? So they were saying that I should think about that. And that had to do, it facilitated because while I was on the phone with the security at Comcast, they were looking at my network. I gave my network name you know, so that they could they could see the network, they could see that it was running. But what, what triggered it was that they said, um, no devices, none of my devices were running off my own network. Yet I was sending emails to him to show him some of the, you know, some of the documentation that I had been gathering in order to provide it to them. Because sometimes visuals are better, especially when you're talking to engineering or uh, security, so that they're looking at it as opposed to you trying to describe it. So if any anyone from the TI community tells you it's a waste of time to document, you should look at them with very uh, as a suspect because documentation is going to mean everything in the end, especially in it, in, to ensure that these people are executed for treason. From the non-consensual human experimentation, the you know using you as target practice to develop their uh, less lethal or their non-kinetic capabilities through directed energy weapons, you know all that stuff that they told us is science fiction. And then as time goes by, all this information comes out. Nobody can be that accurate. Crazy people in particular. It's not conspiracy theory. It is a true Title 18 conspiracy that is transpiring against a targeted victim. It's a felony. And because money changes hands and all this other stuff, and then you're looking at organized crime under the Hobbs Act, 
under the RICO Act. So I'm going to read you something from 2008 while I was living in Italy. I read this article. I'm not going to read the whole thing because it's like 14 pages long, but I'm going to give you the gist of it. Okay, so this was Naomi Klein who wrote an excellent book, um, Disaster Capital. You know, she talked about disaster capitalism. That has to do with the neoliberals or the neoconservatives. Now, in today's language, Friedman Economics. You really should read that book because it's like a mirror image of what's transpiring here. First, you go other places, right? You experiment in Latin America. You experiment, in, you know, so that it becomes like a banana republic with the kangaroo courts. And then once you perfect it, then you bring it home. But she wrote an article uh, in the Rolling Stone on May 14, 2008. And it had to do with China. So we know what China is. It's a communist country. It's a repressive and oppressive. They send their people to re-education camps if they don't behave. They monitor everything they do. Okay, that's China. So it's... um, it's called China's All-Seeing Eye, and I've, I've read this repeatedly because it is important to remind people and then to come back because something transpired or I over I was watching a, um, uh, a segment on YouTube with, uh, what is his name, Rogers? He's the new uh, director, Admiral Michael S. Rogers. He was appointed the head of National Security Agency since uh, General Keith Alexander retired. So I like to call them on their shit because that's what it is. And they can spin it and whitewash and sanitize it any way they want to. But in the end, I'm going to show you what it really means. And I've got an over 90% accuracy rate at my analysis of everything that's been transpiring. Not even psychics are as good as what I have been able to analyze and then publish or speak about. Way ahead. Way ahead. Why? Because I'm a victim of the crimes. So this was, again, uh, China's All-Seeing Eye by Naomi Klein, May 14, 2008, published in the Rolling Stone. With the help of United States defense contractors, China is building the prototype for a high-tech police state. It is ready for export. So think back to 2008, okay? Eight years ago, almost. 30 years ago, the city of Shenzhen did not exist. Back in those days, it was a string of small fishing villages and collectively run rice taddies, a place of rutted dirt roads and traditional temples. That was before the Communist Party chose it. Thanks to its location close to Hong Kong's port to be China's first special economic zone, one of only four areas where capitalism would be permitted on a trial basis. The theory behind the experiment was the real, quote-unquote, China would keep its socialist soul intact while profiting from the private sector jobs and industrial development created in Shenzhen. 
The result was a city of pure commerce, undiluted by history or rooted culture, the crack cocaine of capitalism. It was a force so addictive to investors that the Shenzhen experiment quickly expanded, swallowing not just the surrounding Pearl River Delta, which now houses roughly 100,000 factories, but much of the rest of the country as well. Today, Shenzhen is a city of 12.4 million people, and there is a good chance that at least half of everything you own was made here. iPods, laptops, sneakers, flat-screen televisions, cell phones, jeans, maybe your desk chair, possibly your car, and almost certainly your printer. Hundreds of luxury condominiums tower over the city. Many are more than 40 stories high, topped with three-story penthouses. Newer neighbors like Kenji Yuan are packed with ostentatiously modern corporate campuses and decadent shopping malls. Rem Koolhaas, Panda's favorite architect, is building a stock exchange in Shenzhen that looks like it floats. A design intended, he says, to suggest and illustrate the process of the market. A still under construction super light subway will soon connect it all at high speed. Every car has multiple television screens broadcasting over a Wi-Fi network. At night, the entire city lights up like a pimped-out Hummer, with each five-star hotel and office tower competing over who can put on the best light show. Many of the big American players have set up shop in Shenzhen, but they look singularly unimpressive next to their Chinese competitors. The research complex for China's telecom giant Huawei, for instance, is so large that it has its own highway exit while its workers ride home on their own bus line. Pressed up against Shenzhen's disco shopping center, Walmart superstores, of which are there are nine in the city. Look like jury corner stores? China almost seems to be mocking us. You call that a superstore? McDonald's and KFC appear every few blocks, but they seem almost retro next to real kung fu fast food chain whose mascot is a stylized Bruce Lee. American commentators like CNN's Jack Cafferty dismiss the Chinese as the same bunch of goons and thugs they've been for the last 50 years. But nobody told the people of Shenzhen who are busy putting on a 24-hour-a-day show called America. A pirated version of the original only with flashier designs, higher profits, and less complaining. This has not happened by accident. China today, epitomized by Shenzhen's transition from mud to megacity in 30 years, represents a new way to organize society. Sometimes called the market Stalinism, it is a potent hybrid of the most powerful political tools of authoritarian communism. Central planning, merciless repression, constant surveillance harnessed to advance the goal of global capitalism. So she called it um, market Stalinism. I call it Stalin, um, Stalin capitalism. So capitalism means that you you know you go out. You, these people can have a business. They make money. You can you can uh, 
you purchase things, iPods, iPads, whatever. You go to work, you buy things, you pay your rent, you live, right? So that's more like capitalistic society. But if you complain or if you speak out, they repress you, like in the days of Stalin or Stasi East Germany or North Korea. So you can go out and work, you can go out and purchase, you can have a TV and cable and whatever, but you're under heavy-duty surveillance, and if you think to speak out, then they come down on you like a communist country or an authoritarian country or a dictatorship or a fascist society. Look up the words fascism, authoritarianism, totalitarianism. But this is China. And this is 2008. So let me repeat that last paragraph. This has not happened by accident. China today, epitomized by Shenzhen's transition from mud to megacity in 30 years, represents a new way to organize society. Sometimes called market Stalinism, it is a potent hybrid of the most powerful political tools of authoritarian communism. Central planning, merciless repression, constant surveillance harnessed to advance the goal of global capitalism. Now, as China prepares to showcase its economic advances during the upcoming Olympics in Beijing, Shenzhen is once again serving as a laboratory, a testing ground for the next phase of this vast social experiment. Over the past two years, some 200,000 surveillance cameras have been installed throughout the city. Many are in public spaces disguised as lampposts. The closed-circuit TV cameras, which are CCTVs, will soon be connected to a single nationwide network and all-seeing system that will be capable of tracking and identifying anyone who comes within its range, a project driven in part by United States technology and investment. Over the next three years, Chinese security executives predict they will install as many as 2 million CCTVs in Shenzhen, which would make it the most watched city in the world. The security cameras are just one part of a much broader high-tech surveillance and censorship program known in China as Golden Shield. The end goal is to use the latest people tracking technology thoughtfully supplied by American giants like IBM, Honeywell, and General Electric to create an airtight consumer cocoon, a place where Visa cards, Adidas sneakers, China mobile cell phones, McDonald's Happy Meals, Sing Tao's beer, and UPS delivery to name just a few of the official sponsors of the Beijing Olympics can, uh, can be enjoyed under the unblinking eye of the state with the threat of democracy breaking out. With political unrest on the rise across China, the government hopes to use the surveillance shield to identify and counteract dissent before it explodes into a mass movement like the one that grabbed the world's attention in Tiananmen Square. Remember how we've always been told that free market and free people go hand in hand. That was a lie. 
it turns out that the most efficient delivery delivery system for capitalism is actually a communist-style police state fortressed with American homeland security technologies pumped up with war on terror rhetoric. As the global corporations currently earning super profits from their social experiment are unlikely to be content in the lucrative new markets remains confined to cities such as Shenzhen, like everything else assembled in China with American parts, Police State 2.0 is ready for export to a neighborhood near you. So remember, I'm not reading this article from 2016. This was an article that came out in the Rolling, Rolling Stone magazine by Naomi Klein in 2008. Zhang Yi points to an empty bracket on the dashboard of his black Honda. It used to hold my GPS, but I leave it at home now, he says. It's the crime. They are too easy to steal, he quickly adds. Since the surveillance cameras came in, we have seen a very dramatic decrease in crime in Shenzhen. After driving for an hour past hundreds of factory gates and industrial parks, we pull up to a salmon-colored building that Zheng partly owns. This is the headquarters of FSAN CCTV system. Zheng, a prototypical Shenzhen yuppie, is in a royal blue button-down shirt and black rim glasses, apologizes for the mess. Inside, Every inch of space is lined with cardboard boxes filled with electronic parts and finished products. Zhang opened the factory two and a half years ago, and his investment has already paid off tenfold. That kind of growth isn't unusual in the field he has chosen. Zhang's factory makes digital surveillance cameras, turning out 400,000 a year. Half of the cameras are shipped overseas, destined to peer from building ledges in London, Manhattan, and Dubai as part of the global boom in homeland security. The other half stays in China. Many right here in Shenzhen and in neighboring Guangzhou, another megacity of 12 million people. China's market for surveillance cameras enjoyed revenues of $4.1 billion last year, a jump 24% from 2006. Zhang, Zhang escorts me to the assembly line where rows of young workers, most of them women, are bent over semiconductors, circuit boards, tiny cables, and bulbs. At the end of each line is quality control, which consists of plugging the cameras into a monitor and making sure that it records. We enter a showroom where Zhang and his colleagues meet with clients. The walls are lined with dozens of camera models, domes of all sizes, specializing in day and night wet and dry camouflage to look like lights, camouflage to look like smoke detectors, explosion-proof the size of soccer balls, the size of a ring box. The workers at FSAN don't just make surveillance cameras. They are constantly watched by them. So let me repeat that. The workers at FSAN don't just make surveillance cameras. They are constantly watched by them. While they work, the silent eyes of rotating lenses capture their every move. When they leave work and board buses, they are filmed again. When they walk to their dormitories, the streets are lined with what looks like newly installed street lamps. There are white poles curving towards the sidewalk with black domes at the end. 
Inside the domes are high-resolution cameras. The same kind of workers, the same kind their workers produced at FSAN. Some blocks have three or four, one every few yards. One Shenzhen-based company, China Security and Surveillance Technology, has developed software to enable the cameras to alert police when an unusual number of people begin to gather at any given location. So right now, they're called behavioral cameras. Some of them are some of them come from Texas, or that was the um, the World Trade Center has them. So what happens is if if the if the camera is programmed to see that the flow of traffic is going north, and there's a there's people there's a couple people who were walking south in the opposite direction, the camera picks up on that. That's not normal behavior. So it sends an alert. It's just like a bag. If you leave a bag on the ground, these behavioral cameras then know that there's something on the ground that's not supposed to be there. So then it goes around again. It's still there. By the third or fourth, you know, uh, what do you call it, the way it rotates, it'll send an alarm. Those are all considered, quote, unquote, behavioral system cameras. So in this case, in China, they were field testing unusual groups of people. So you could program this security camera to say, you know, at any given time, there shouldn't be more than five people. So if 10 people gather, that's an alarm. Sends an alarm to the local precinct. <clears throat> so again, one Shenzhen-based company, China Security and Surveillance Technology, has developed software to enable the camera to alert police when an unusual number of people begin to gather at any given location. In, two, in 2006, the Chinese government mandated that all Internet cafes, as well as restaurants and other entertainment venues, install video cameras with, with direct feed to their local police station, part of a wider surveillance project known as Safe cities. The effort now encompasses 660 municipalities in China. It is the most ambitious new government program in the Pearl Delta River, and supplying it is one of the fastest growing new markets in Shenzhen. But the cameras that Zhang manufactures are only part of the massive experiment in population control that is underway here. The big picture Zhang tells me in his office at the factory is integration. That means linking cameras with other forms of surveillance, the internet, phone, facial recognition software, and GPS monitoring. This is how this golden shield will work. Chinese citizens will be watched around the clock throughout through networked CCTV cameras and remote monitoring of computers. They will be listened to on their phone calls, monitored by digital voice recognition technologies. Their Internet access will be aggressively limited through the country's notorious system of online controls known as the Great Firewall. Their movements will be tracked through national ID cards with scannable computer chips and photos that are instantly uploaded to police databases and linked to their holders' personal data. This is the most important element of all, linking all these tools together in a massive 
searchable database of names, photos, residency information, work history, and biometric data. When Golden Shield is finished, there will be a photo in those databases for every person in China. 1.3 billion faces. <laughs> Shenzhen is the place where the shield has received its most extensive fortifications. The place where all the spy toys are being hooked together and tested to see what they can do. The central government eventually wants to have city-by-city city surveillance so they could just sit and monitor one city and its surveillance system as a whole, Zhang says. It's all part of the bigger project. Once the tests are done and it's proven, they will be spreading from the big provinces to, of the, to the cities, even to the rural farmlands. In fact, the rollout of high-tech shield is already well underway. So, why the hell do you guys care? Well, because some of the technology comes from us. And so, as you go on with this article, they're doing facial recognition. This is in 2008, okay? Biometrics, that's advanced biometrics, right? The next generation biometrics. Facial, optical, right? Emotion, vocal recognition. Those are all biometrics. Those are part of you. But the next, next generation, which they don't talk about in this article, which is cognitive neuroscience and neurotechnologies. What the eye sees, optical to brain. What the eye sees, how the brain reacts. Facial to brain. Vocal to brain recognition. That's the next, next, next generation biometrics. They're, they're, they've already completed it. It's just a matter of when they're going to roll it out. The FBI is already talking about the next generation biometrics, which are these facial, uh, facial recognition, optical, vocal. That's all biometrics. This is 2008. It's already perfected. It's just a matter of how they roll it out to the American people who don't seem to understand how they're, they're, the, everything that they roll out, that they allow, is simply another form of oppression. So you think I'm reading this because it's just about frickin' China. Oh, they're communists. Yeah, we know that. They're authoritarian, totalitarian, you know, all that dictator type of shit. This America, they don't do that here. Really. What did all those Snowden leaks say? Where do you think the proprietary software and the proprietary technology came from that China was using in order to build these type of sensor systems? So I'm not going to read it, but I'm giving you an... Uh, so the so
So what it is is that they're using the cameras as a weapon. And so they talk about this Tibetan uprising that happened with the monks. Remember the monks? So what they did was when you have access to that kind of video, and monks are peaceful people, you know, but they started fighting back. So what the Chinese did was they carefully cut and edited what the people saw instead of the realities of what provoked these monks to finally start fighting back. Well, they've done that to every single target out there. They don't tell you about all the shit that they do to a target, and then you see the target reacting. And then you think that that is the only issue that's transpiring. It is about how you carefully cut and edit. Why do you think Hollywood's involved? You could shape any narrative based on utilizing or manipulating how you want your end result to look like. So they talk about that in this article. She talks about that. Um, they talk about this. Uh, there, so I'll read this part. Police Day 2.0 might not look good from the outside, but on the inside it appears to have passed its first major test. In Guangzhou, an hour and a half by train from Shenzhen, Yao Rugong is preparing for a major test of his own. It is called the 10 million face test, he tells me. Yao is managing director of Pixel Solutions, a Chinese company that specializes in producing the new high-tech national ID card, as well as selling facial recognition software to businesses and government agencies. The test the first phase of which is only weeks away, is being staged by the Ministry of Public Security in Beijing. The idea is to measure the effectiveness of face recognition software in identifying police suspects. Participants will be given a series of photos taken in a variety of situations. Their task will be to match the images to other photos of the same people in the government's massive database. Several biometric companies, including Yells, have been invited to compete. We have to be able to match a face in a 10 million database in one second. Okay, do you understand? That's quantum capabilities. 10 million photos. And it has to match one face through 10 million photos in one second. 2008. That's facial recognition. FBI just started talking last year about rolling out the facial recognition. <clears throat> we are preparing for that now. The companies that score well will be the first in line for lucrative government contracts to integrate face recognition software into Golden Shield using it to check for ID fraud and to discover the identities of suspects caught on surveillance cameras. Yao says the technology is almost there. It will happen next year. When I meet Yao at his corporate headquarters, he is feeling confident about how his company will perform in the test. His secret weapon is that he will be using facial recognition software purchased from L1 Identity Solutions, a major United States defense contractor that produces passports and biometric security systems for the United States government. Actually, uh, the DMV, California DMV, most all the DMVs are using this L1 technology with the chips that are in it. 
if you look up L1, I think they changed their name, though they were bought out. <laughs> but the bottom line is that the proprietary software came from the United States. So a major U.S. defense contractor that produces passports and biometric security systems for the U.S. government. To show how well it works, Yao demonstrates on himself. Using a camera attached to his laptop, he snapped a picture of his own face, round and boyish, for its 54 years. Then he uploads it onto the computer's proprietary website built with L1 software. With the cursor, he marks his own eyes with two green plus signs, helping the system to measure the distance between his features, a distinctive aspect of our faces that does not change with disguise or even surgery. The first step is to capture the image, Yao explains. Next is finding the face. He presses apply, telling the program to match the new face with photos of the same person in the company's database of 600,000 faces. Instantly, multiple photos of Yao appear, including one taken 19 years earlier, proof that the technology can find a face even when the face has changed significantly with time. It took 1.1 milliseconds, Yao exclaims. Yeah, that's me. So I'm going to go. I'm 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 uh, moving forward a little bit. So it says, um, not a computer scientist himself. He studied English. Blah blah blah. Okay. So it says, um, a few companies, however, were scoring much higher in controlled tests in the United States. One of them was a company soon to be renamed L1 Identity Solutions, based in Connecticut. L1 was created two years ago out of a merger, out of mergers and buyouts of half a dozen major players in biometric in the biometric field all of which specialize in the science of identifying people through distinct physical traits, fingerprints, irises, face geometry. The merger made L1 a one-stop shop for biometrics. Thanks to a board member like former thanks to board members like former CIA director George Tenet, the company rapidly became a homeland security heavy hitter. L1 projects it projects its annual revenues will hit 1 billion by 2011. Much of it from United States government contracts. In 2006, Yale tells me I made the first phone calls and sent the first emails. For a flat fee of $20,000, he gained access to the company's proprietary software, allowing him to build a lot of development software based on L1 technology. Since then, L1 partnerships with Yale has gone far beyond that token investment. Yao said it isn't really his own company that is competing in the upcoming 10 million faces test being staged by the Chinese government will will be involved on behalf of L1 in China. Yao adds that he communicates regularly with L1 and has visited the company's research headquarters in New Jersey. Out of the window, you can see the Statue of Liberty. It's such a historic place. Alwyn is watching his test preparations with great interest, Yao says. It seems that they were more excited than us when we tell them the results. Alwyn's enthusiasm is hardly surprising. 
If Yao impresses the Ministry of Public Security with the company's ability to identify criminals, L1 will have cracked the largest potential market for biometrics in the world. But here's the catch. As proud as Yao is to be L1's Chinese licensees, L1 appears to be distinctly less proud of its association with Yao. On its website and in its reports to investors, L1 boasts of contracts and negotiations with governments from Panama to, and Saudi Arabia to Mexico and Turkey. China, however, is conspicuously absent. And though CEO Bob LaPenta makes references to some large international opportunities, not once does he mention Pixel Solutions in Guangzhou. After leaving a message with the company inquiring about L1's involvement in China's homeland security market, I get a callback from Dory Fordyce, Vice President of Corporate Communications. She has consulted Joseph Attic, the company's head of research. We have nothing in China, she tells me. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. We are uninvolved. We really don't have any relationships at all. I tell Fordyce about Yao, the 10 million tests, the money he paid for the software license. She'll call me right back. When she does, 20 minutes later, it is with this news. Absolutely, we've sold testing SDK software development kits to Pixel Solutions and others in China that may be entering a test. Yao uses use of the technology, she said, is within his license purchased from L1. The company's reticence to publicize its activities in China could have something to do with the fact that the relationship between Yao and L1 may well be illegal under United States law. After the Chinese government sent tanks into Tiananmen Square in 1989, Congress passed legislation barring United States companies from selling any products in China that have to do with crime control or detection instruments or equipment. That means not only guns, but everything from police batons and handcuffs to ink and powder for taking fingerprints and software for storing them. Interestingly, one of the detection instruments that prompted the legislation was the surveillance camera. Beijing, Beijing had installed several clunky cameras around Tiananmen Square originally meant to monitor traffic flow. Those lenses were ultimately used to identify and arrest key pro-democracy dissidents. The intent of that act, a congressional staff member with considerable Chinese experience, tells me was to keep United States companies out of the business of helping the Chinese police conduct conduct their business, which might ultimately end up, as it did in 1989, in the suppression of human rights and democracy in China. So, what does that mean? After Tiananmen Square, and we saw that, they used the, the surveillance cameras to round people up, and then they executed them. So, Congress passed a law saying United States companies are forbidden to provide China with surveillance capabilities or how to make surveillance or how to do surveillance of their own people for suppression purposes. Where the fuck do you see all, our, all, the, all of our surveillance coming from? The cameras, everything. China. 
Then they blame China. Oh, they hacked us. Well, shit, if you got L1 uh, Identity Solutions and they're doing the biometrics that are in your license plate and your passport and how to get into government buildings, well, you think, you think that China's going to sit there and like, make these things and manufacture them and not know how they operate? That should have been the first red flag. Why would you go to a country that represses people that might steal the proprietary software so that they could clone it? Because of money. So Pixel's application of L1 facial recognition software seems to fly in the face of the band's intent. By his own admission, Yao is already getting business from Chinese state spies anxious to use facial recognition to identify dissidents. And as part of the 10 million faces test, Yao has been working intimately with Chinese national security forces syncing L1 software to their vast database, a process that took a week of intensive work in Beijing. During that time, Yao says he was on the phone every day with L1, getting its help adapting the technology because we are representing them, he says. We took the test on their behalf. In other words, this controversial United States crime control control technology has already found its way into the hands of the Chinese police. Moreover, Yao's goal stated to me several times is to use the software to land lucrative contracts with police agencies to integrate facial recognition into the newly built system of omnipresent surveillance cameras and high-tech national ID cards. As part of any contract he gets, Yao says he will pay L1 a certain percentage of their sales. When I put the L1 scenario to the Commerce Department's Bureau of Industry and Security, the division charged with enforcing the post-Tiananmen export controls, a representative says that software kits are subject to the sanctions if they are exported from the United States or are the foreign direct product of a United States origin item. Based on both criteria, the software kit sold to Yao seems to fall within the ban. When I asked Donnie Fordyce at L1 about the embargo, she tells me, I don't know anything about that. Asked whether she would like to find out about it and call me back. She replies, I really don't want to comment, so there is no comment. Then she hangs up. You have probably never heard of L1, but there is every chance that it has heard of you. Few companies have collected as much sensitive information about U.S. citizens and visitors to America as L1. It boasts a database of 60 million records, and it captures more than a million new fingerprints every year. Here is a small sample of what the company does, produces passports and passport cards for American citizens, takes finger scans of visitors to, to the United States under the Department of Homeland Security's massive U.S. visit program equips U.S. soldiers 
in Iraq and Afghanistan with mobile iris and multi-mobile devices so they can collect biometric data in the field, maintains the State Department's largest facial recognition database system, and produces driver's license in Illinois, Montana, North Carolina. In addition, L1 has an even more secretive intelligence unit called SpecTol. Asked by a Wall Street analyst to discuss it, discuss in extremely general terms what the division was doing with contracts worth roughly $100 million, the company's CEO would only say, stay tuned. It is L1's deep integration with multiple United States government agencies that makes its dealings in China so interesting. It isn't just L1 that is potentially helping the Chinese police to nab potential dissidents. It's United States taxpayers. The technology that Yao purchased for just a few thousand dollars is the result of Defense Department research grants and contracts going as far back as 1994 when a young academic named Joseph Attic, a research director, director, Fordyce consulted on L1 China dealings, taught a computer at Rockefeller University to recognize his face. Yao, for his part, knows all about the United States, export controls on police equipment to China. He tells me that L1's electronic fingerprinting tools are banned from entering China due to United States concerns that they will be used to catch the political criminals, you know, the dissidents, more easily. He thinks he and L1 have found a legal loophole. However, while fingerprinting technology appears on the Commerce Department's list of banned products, there is no explicit mention of face prints. Likely because the idea was still in the realm of science fiction when the Tiananmen Square massacre took place. As far as Yao is concerned, that omission means that L1 can legally supply its facial recognition software for use by the Chinese government. Whatever the legality of L1's participation in Chinese surveillance, it is clear that United States companies are determined to break into the homeland security market in China, which represents their biggest growth potential since 9-11. According to their congressional staff member, American companies and their lobbyists are applying enormous pressure to open the floodgates. So what it basically is is that there was a ban, so then they, they have the Olympics. Oh, then that, we have to secure China for the Olympics. You know, so they come up with all these narratives that make it possible for more and more companies to go to China to, to build these products, these surveillance tools. So remember, I'm reading something from 2008. So I'm not going to finish the article. I have it linked. You can... Uh, it's called China's All-Seeing Eye, Naomi Klein. You just type in the keywords on the Internet and you'll find it or have it linked in my show. But now I'm going to play something because in December, the National Security Agency came together and this, um, uh, what's his name? Uh, it was called the INSA Leadership Dinner with NSA Director Admiral Michael S. Rogers. So I'm not going to play the whole thing because all they do is really boast about it. I'm going to scroll way forward because I want to hear this. He starts talking about all the capabilities that we have. And so when he talks about it, the first thing that flashed in my head was, this is China. This is all about China. Not about what China's doing to their own people, but what the potential in the wrong hands can be done to the American people. 
hired to help them. So we find ourselves four organizations trying to work together. Now, when I first got the call, I thought to myself, just picture the general counsel of California. Hey, go off and do what business is, you know, we're going to set ourselves up for liability. Talks about his first day on the job, uh, or one of his first days was the Sony hack. Remember the Sony hacks? Fucking Sony, you deserve what you got, you motherfuckers. I will never forgive you for what you did to me in the workplace. Fuck you, Sony Entertainment. Fuck you, Sony Pictures Entertainment. I'll never change that opinion. You brought those demons into, and I'm not talking about, I don't believe in this God versus devil shit. I just, I'm using it as a metaphorical term. But you brought these assholes into the workplace so that they could show you how to target my ass. You deserved everything you got, including that big-ass fucking hack. I will never, ever forgive Sony for what they did in the workplace, ever. So anyway, he's, this NSA director is talking about the first thing that he gets called on, you know, and national security gets involved. It should be the Federal Bureau of Investigation, but somehow national security, and that has to do with the Sony hack, Sony Pictures Entertainment. But let me scroll forward a little bit. So I have the link to this called INSA Leadership Dinner with NSA Director Admiral Michael S. Rogers. It was published, uh, uh, Glenn Greenwald posted it on Twitter. It was posted, published on January 6, 2016. It says, on Tuesday, December 15, 2015, INSA hosted a leadership dinner with Admiral Michael S. Rogers, Commander of United States Cyber Command, Director, National Security Agency, Chief Central Security Services. The dinner featured remarks from Admiral Rogers on NSA's growing role in supporting public, private, and foreign partnerships from cyber threats, as well as an update on the evolution of Cyber Command since its establishment in 2009. So I'm going to play this old part, and then I'll go back to you. You can listen to him. But you know what? See, like, I could take these clips. See, this is what I'm talking about. And there are some clips with this guy where when you freeze the frame, he looks like a freaking lunatic. You can make anybody look like a lunatic. And this is the head. Look at Cyber Command. You should see all the medals he has on, on his jacket. <laughs> He's kind of scary, though. This guy kind of looks like a psychopath. I mean, at least Keith Alexander didn't look like a psychopath. This guy looks pretty dangerous. U.S. Cyber Command, I think we're still not in a position yet where we're truly ready to separate the synergies between us. efficiencies that we achieve by bringing organizations together under one individual. Why we did this in part was billions of dollars of investments we have made. So what they're doing is National Central Command was separate from Cyber Command from National Security. Defense Intelligence Agency, blah, 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 right? They're all supposed to be kind of separate, national security and then the central command. 
So what they're doing is they brought them together, and this guy here, this he he looks really, you know what? He gives me the heebie-jeebies. There's something not right about this guy. Okay. <laughs> the dinner featured remarks from. So this was. So he. What did I say he was? Okay. So Admiral Michael S. Rogers, Commander of the United States Cyber Command, Director of National Security Agency, and Chief of Central Security Services. So he has now become. They have put one boss over all of it. He used to have different bosses. So they're integrating or they're condensing it. You know, like that China's all-seeing eye? And then having the quantum capabilities to be able to get those type of people, you know, sift through all that information. You got to see this guy's face, though, because, you know, he kind of gives me the creeps.
strategic insights can help shape the nation's decisions at a very strategic and senior level. It's the broad choices that we're going to make within the national security structures that we're all trying to deal with. And at the same time, we go all the way down to the very edge of the tactical battle space everywhere on this planet where the DOD is. And they say it's right there, all the way out of the tactical edge. And for us to be successful, we must do the one spectrum. We got to work that entire spectrum. Um, again, one of my um, frustrations at times as an intelligence professional is be very swinging to the extremes too much. Whether that extreme is, hey, the metric of success for me is how many articles do I get in the PDB? That just drives me up the wall. Likewise, hey, it's all about how much tactical reporting are you generating in, in Afghanistan, Iraq, Syria, fill in the blank. It can't be the extremes. We gotta position ourselves to meet that spectrum. And we gotta constantly ask ourselves, how do we maximize finite resources? And how do we make those mission trade-offs? That's where the power of partnerships becomes so critical to us. The idea that NSA is gonna be this singing powerhouse that's just gonna do it all by itself, I don't think it's workable for the future. Uh, how do we create partnerships? How do we generate capability from other SIGINT partners in other parts of the world? You know, most people don't realize that the real strength of NSA is this fact that we have been able to create an integrated structure. It doesn't matter if the sensor is on an orbit 22,000 miles above the surface of the Earth, if it's on an aircraft ship or submarine, if it's being humped on somebody's back, if it's a tactical remote capability being put somewhere, if it's done by RF, done by a network, it doesn't matter for us. We've created a enterprise that enables to align all of that into a single integrated process that generates outcomes. So, now I'm flashing forward, because that's 2015. This is at the INSA Leadership Dinner with the National Security Agency Director, Admiral Michael S. Rogers. Now, what did he say? that they have the capability, land, sea, air, space, backpack, which is non-portable, remote capabilities through radio frequencies, radar, all the way to the networks and integrate all forms of information into one system. Doesn't that sound like China's golden shield? lampposts that have behavioral recognition can send, an, send information to the local law enforcement. Everything's integrated, all CCTVs going into one central database. That's China. They need that to repress their people. That's what authoritarians do. That's what fascists do. Yet here, it, here is, flashing forward now, remember that was 2008 article, now we're in 2015 when they had this dinner, December 2015, so it's really like 2016 almost. Head of the National Security, head of Central Command, Cyber Command. So let me repeat what he said. And it almost sounds just like me reading what China's doing. 
but wait a second. This is America. You know, home of the brave, land of the free. We have a constitution. We have due process. We have warrants. You know that thing called the Constitution. You know that thing that he swore an oath to. Even local law enforcement swears an oath of office to the Constitution first, then to the state, and then to their local municipalities. Because it's all about the Constitution. Democracy, freedom. Freedom of speech. Freedom of the press. Even freedom of religion. Right to petition the government without fear of retribution or retaliation. Not labeling people and then saying that you're justified in doing human experiments on them so you can zap their brain into submission because there's something wrong with them. That's bullshit. And you can do it remotely. You can send frequencies. That's what RF is, radio frequencies. But I'm not reading an article like I was from 2008 about China and the repression of their people under full-scale surveillance and surveillance capabilities all being tied into one golden shield. You expect that of countries like China or North Korea, even Saudi Arabia and other authoritarian dictatorships, monarchies. This is someone from America. So let me repeat what he says about the capabilities we have. And then you go back to a classified document from 2003 called Information Operation Roadmap. And in it, they talk about domination of the electromagnetic spectrum. Anything that runs off the circuitry through the air, land, sea, air, space, that you can pick up on, they want domination of it globally. greatest capability is what China is doing. 
but China's only being able to do it based on United States proprietary technologies that they didn't develop here because Americans would probably shit twice and start protesting. So they went over to China. And China loves it because they want to oppress and suppress their people. So they're happy to take it. And, and uh, uh, what do you call it? You take, you, know, you take the proprietary and then you build upon it until you get the finished product. Then you export it back to the United States. Hey, look at this. That's pretty good. And you have to pay the labor costs. So what did he say? Well, it sounds just like the article I read from 2008. What was China doing? What was the end goal? Well, it, it's um, for you to be able to live in what you think is freedom, capitalism, where you can go to work and you can buy and you can watch whatever TV show you want or <clears throat> search the Internet. Well, in China, you, you're a little bit more suppressed but basically have the freedom to buy something, to go out to dinner, to have an apartment, whatever. But if you dare to speak out or speak up or whistleblow, then they come down on you like Stalin did. And by the way, Stalin used what was called psychiatric reprisals, which meant you know, intellectuals, educators, whatever, if they started speaking out against the repression, in Stalin's Russia, then they'd throw them into psych wards and have them labeled with some type of psychiatric diagnosis so that people would stop believing what they said. But see, I'm taking, I'm not, I'm not making stuff up. This is some uh, journalist who went to China right before the Olympics and got this information and did a lot of research. That was 2008. You heard me read it. So I'm going to play again what the NSA uh, director, Admiral Michael S. Rogers, said about the sweet spot, the power of the National Security Agency, and what they can harness, and how they harness it, and how they integrated it all into one so it spits out information that they're looking for. Mind you, they, they have been unsuccessful at catching real criminals, but they show us how know how to profile people that they don't like and then reverse engineer everything so people will target them. But finding real criminals and real terrorists? Shit. They seem to be doing a very good job at that, but they know how to set people up. And that's probably one of the main goals. It's not necessarily about catching terrorists, but having insider information, intellectual property, setting people up, those type of things, to get them to do what you want them to do, because now you got the goods on them. But the war on terror... I don't think so. You got corporate information. You got all kinds of information simply because, like he says, land, sea, air, space. Whether it's radio frequencies, whether it's continuous radar, whether it's an actual network, 
tapping in, all of it coming together, integrated, so it can spew out the information they're looking for. Hey, we're in this city. Who's, who's compromised? That's in a position of power that we can blackmail to get them to go along with what we want. Who's in the city council or whatever that we can blackmail so they vote our way or push our agenda? That is what all of this surveillance is about. But catching terrorists? I don't think so. Because if they were catching terrorists, they'd have already neutralized the very network that they created who are committing acts of terrorism, domestic terrorism, against unarmed, defenseless civilians, targeted civilians who were set up by the state. Knowing that they were innocent, but getting other people to focus on that target so they don't focus on all the other shit that's going on. But I don't like it when I'm listening to something like this and I hear him say everything that I've already said that people told me, oh, you're a conspiracy theorist. Government doesn't do shit like that. What do you need all those capabilities for unless you ultimately are, t- are going to oppress people? Set them up. Destroy their lives. Label them. Silence them. Build profiles on people so you know their vulnerabilities so you can get to them or compromise them so they do what you want them to do down the road. That's why you never shake hands with people like this because it's like the mob. You don't ever get out. And they always come back when they need a favor. And he just proved and he just stated that they have those capabilities that everybody told targets like me and other targets who came forward to all proper authorities at the local, state, and federal level, non-government organizations, lawyer after lawyer and law firm after fucking law firm, that they don't have the capabilities to do that or they wouldn't do that. What makes you think you're so important? Because they're using me for target practice. I'm expendable, you fucking assholes. So they can calibrate and program and perfect and take field testing into fully operational. And the lives of the innocent targets being absolutely brutally, brutally harmed. Who's going to believe them? They've been labeled. We hope they die because then there's no material evidence left. They're expendable. That's what they think. We're just another species to be harnessed, to be experimented on. And I'm telling you, you think I'm kidding, and I tell you, 
that after the 2003 Information Operation Roadmap, they also had the technological roadmap that went along with the InfoOps roadmap. And it talked about technology. And it even talked about, like, you know, bioweapons and viruses. And I'll never forget reading through that and them saying, pick a species to conduct these experiments on. An elk, a cow, or a human. They look at us like species or fodder. They don't look at us as human breathing, you know, sentient beings, living, breathing human beings. It doesn't matter to them. But it matters to me. And it matters to all those targeted individuals who have come forward to all proper authorities. Because it's our lives that have been affected and targeted and tampered with. They may look at targets like disposable human trash or expendable or collateral damage. But we look at our lives as being fellow human beings that have a right to exist in civilized society. So you go find that 2003 technological roadmap and scan through it. And it had to do with some type of virus. But when it said pick a species, elk, cow, or human. So we were in the same category to these type of people. Just expendable. And so listening to Admiral Rogers talk about the capability that I've said, that other people have said for years, calling us conspiracy theorists or mental cases or we're making our shit up or only movies and science fiction have this stuff. And identifying the capabilities from radio frequencies to electromagnetics to electronic harassment. None of those things. Nothing. And here we are in 2015, and Admiral Rogers is saying how everything has been integrated, and he even utilizes RF, which is radio frequencies. Crazy people don't know shit like that. Victims who have had to look to find out what the fuck was going on with their electronics, with their cell phones, with their cable, with their internet, with their appliances. Understand electromagnetics and radio frequencies. Because we've been the victims of field testing, of training, of recruitment, of calibration, 
of perfecting, of programming. One-stop shop. Somebody's private, human, living space. You know, to be secure in your papers and your home. Well, they blew that one right out the window. What is that, the Fourth Amendment? They just invade right into your home. And then they exploit everything. That's why I will never stop until these people are executed for treason. So let's go back. All these things don't exist. It must be in your mind. How many years were targets told that? As they perfected the capabilities. As they profited at the expense of our human living lives. They don't exist. They only come and move. That's only what movies do. Way back in the early 2000s, begging for their lives. Some of them not here to beg anymore because they're dead. But after all, you're picking a species, a cow, an elk, or a human. What difference does it make to these type of people? So let me go back and flash forward here to Admiral Rogers, and he'll tell you all about the capabilities that they have at their disposal to be utilized at any time they choose. But don't ever fucking tell me that I made my shit up.
So what are they going to use all that information for? They didn't find the San Bernardino. They didn't find the Boston. But they know how to set up people real good. They know how to blackmail people and coerce them, intimidate them. Oh, my goodness, the intimidation tactics under PSYOPs and military deception, the blitzing. When you're unsuspecting and you have no idea what they're capable of doing. But I do, because I'm a victim of their crimes. So when he said that, it was like a big, oh, okay. Let me, let me go back through my memory. You know, not the one that they erase when they can trigger me and I don't remember what they just did. Let me flash back to 2008. I remember that article. I've read it before. Oh, they would do that. You know, they only do shit like that in China. He just said, land, sea, airspace, radio frequencies, man-portable. Man man-portable, backpack size. You can take a whole, the full-body scanners at the airport that they've been using where it shows all your body parts and your chichis and your peepees, you know, all that stuff. And I was telling them, all the capabilities that I've been researching are showing me that they're taking big systems like that and they're making them handheld and man-portable. Oh, that's bullshit. They'll never be able to do that. That'll take years and years and years. Bullshit. With the quantum speed of cap- with, um, with the Silicon Valley and the processing, you can take a whole full-body scanner from the airport and they already have it down to a handheld one that can look at your body in the same way that that full-body scanner does. But although they always said, oh, you're making things up. No, I just, I can, I can tell and analyze and predict. And that's why I predict that all this will come out and these people will be held to account for the first-degree murders of targeted individuals and targeted victims who continue to be harassed and tortured and harmed. And with the speed of technology, there will be whistleblowers and these people will be brought to justice. I don't think it. I know it. <laughs> 